Lord Jesus, please open your word to us tonight. Please give me the right words to say. Please grant that your spirit be at work among us. Teach our hearts. Open our minds to your wonders. Fill us with the knowledge of you. And let it transform us. Send us out for your service afterwards, please. Amen. Amen. This is one of those passages, isn't it? We, we know it from culture. We know it from Sunday school. We, we get the story. It's in our common parlance as a simple saying, the lion's den. I think it does reward us, though, if we dig down into it a little bit more. The, um, the first question we're going to need to ask is this. Where does this fit within the scope of this book of Daniel? Um, Daniel 6 seems to come towards the end of the first half of this book. Later on, we're going to get lots and lots of prophecy. It's going to get proper weird. Daniel 6 is almost at the end of a set of stories which are arranged in a chiasm. Amateur preachers like me love to spot these everywhere. They're one of the Old Testament literary techniques that we know about. It's a symmetry that emphasises something that's at the middle of it. So, if you flick through the book of Daniel, chapter 2 and chapter 7 that we're going to hit next week are both big visions. Visions of four somewhat inhuman kingdoms which God will topple to institute his rule. Chapter 3 and chapter 6 for tonight. These both see faithful Hebrews who are being saved from execution by that ruling God. And chapters 4 and here we go. Yeah. Chapters 4 and 5, which are the middle of the chiasm, the point of emphasis, they show us two kings being brought low. Hopefully that's going to... Oh, I'm on the wrong chiasm. There you go. That's confusion, Charlie. Great. Chapters 4 and 5 um, are the pinnacle of that first chiasm. They're the bit that it's focusing on. The point of Daniel. That is that... Two kings are brought down. One is restored afterwards, one is destroyed. But in both cases, it's God. It's the Lord who's sovereign. He's the true ruler. So it's not in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar. It's not in chapter 5, Belshazzar. God rules. Now bearing that in mind, chapters 6 and 3 are both pointing inwards. They're both contributing to that message. In each of them, the king makes a foolish decree. And their advisers use that as a way to attack God's people. And we see that the Lord is mighty to save his people. That no one can snatch them from his hand. Chapter 6 isn't just a repeat of chapter 3, though. It would be convenient to just send you away to listen to David's sermon. But I I needed to do some work as well. There were some distinctions. So in chapter 3, we had an arrogant king... Nebuchadnezzar, who sets himself up as a god. And we see part of the story of him being humbled and then brought to recognise the Lord in chapter 4. In chapter 6, it's a different king, it's Darius. And he starts off, I think, in a much better place. He's a king who's at least on the cusp of faith. And he's growing in knowledge of the Lord through the story. He ends up at the point of worship. 
In chapter 3, we've got Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, Daniel's three chums, and they're being persecuted for refusing to commit a sin. They won't worship Nebuchadnezzar. Here in chapter 6, it's different. Daniel is, is instead refusing not to keep depending on the Lord. Chapter 3, perhaps, emphasises the, the vanity and the weakness of Nebuchadnezzar's rule. And that the Lord overthrows that. In chapter 6, I, I think we see the emphasis on the greatness of the Lord as ruler. So let's look for that. As I've given away with the PowerPoint already, chapter 6 itself is another little chiasm. And it starts and finishes with Daniel. Um, despite him being the name on the book, he's only really a bit part in this story. He's a, a fairly passive character. So he's there at the beginning, verses 1 to 3. They set up Daniel's success so far. And then verse 28, we see him returning to prosperity afterwards. The core character is, is more Darius, I think. Verses 4 to 9, we see Darius being manipulated into giving this unwise decree. And then verses 25 and 27 later, we see him inspired to a better decree. After Darius, you've got the bad guys, you've got the advisors. Verses 10 to 15, they push through their accusation, they think they're victorious. They get Daniel. But then verses 23 and 24, they get their comeuppance in a, a grisly fashion. And so what's left at the middle, do you see how it builds towards that? Um, this isn't so much a pyramid as a valley. At the lowest point of this chiasm, in the pit, we see Darius in verses 16 to 18 forced to throw the wrong person to the lions. And he's longing for the Lord's salvation. And verses 19 to 22, he sees that salvation worked out. And so he ends up in praise. The focus of the story, for the initial readers to pick out, is there in verse 16. The king says to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. And then in verse 20, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And then picked up again in verse 26, he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, not mine. His dominion will never end. He rescues. He saves. He performs signs and wonders. <coughs> Daniel's God rescues, does yours. That, I think, is the central message and question of this passage. It, written, I suppose, for Old Testament Hebrews and Gentile onlookers. The living God, it says, is the true ruler. He's able to save his people from lesser powers. Where do you depend for your safety? Let's look through it in a bit more depth. First of all, look at Daniel, verses 1 to 3. Within the context of the rest of this book, this is really not very surprising. Babylon has fallen. The previous king has been murdered. But the invading armies, they weren't just barbarians planning to sweep through and pillage and move on. They were conquerors. They were there to stay. And so as part of that, they keep the civil service intact. They want to rule this kingdom and extract profit from it. 
And so Daniel, as one of the experienced civil administrators, he's kept on. It may not have hurt his case that he's just spoken out very publicly against the previous king. But what then cements his position as a top administrator is that along with being competent, he's trustworthy. His job is to make sure the king does not suffer loss and he distinguishes himself in that. That's verse 2. His enemies despair in verse 4 that he's neither corrupt nor negligent. There is no dirt on him. And so he prospers. And Darius is minded to trust him with the administration of the whole kingdom. And just in passing, there's a couple of ways here that we see God blessing his people. He does this through history. We see it many times in the Bible. First is, um, the way that he blesses people for their work. Daniel's, I suppose, one of the, the models of the Protestant work ethic, isn't he? God calls his people to live and serve wherever they find themselves. He says, submit yourself to rulers and authorities, even in a Gentile context. As you do so, you'll do credit to God's name. If you, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, you see that in action. And so, the Lord often does bless faithful, conscientious service with prosperity. There are often, not always, but often temporal rewards for faithful, honest, godly workers. And of course, then in Daniel 6, we also see that there's sometimes terrible suffering linked to that. But secondly, and I think more importantly, we, we also see how God blesses his people by putting the right people in the right place. Often it's very capable but unassuming folk who he sticks in the right spot in positions of power. There are hints in both chapter 3 and chapter 6 that, that these attacks are part of a larger move against the Jewish people in exile. And through a handful of believers, the Lord neuters those attacks and in fact commends his people to their rulers. He blesses his people. Moving on. Let's look at Darius. I, I should say here, we don't know historically who Darius the Mede is. Um, we think that actually when the conquest happened, Cyrus stepped straight into power. He's mentioned at the end of this chapter in verse 28. It, it seems likely that Darius is a underling of Cyrus, a sort of provincial governor or a client king. Um, perhaps we don't know who he is from history. He may have had a second name. That seems to be common within the book of Daniel. There's various candidates that people point out for being likely Darius's. One is Ugberu, who was one of uh, Cyrus's generals who took on the administration of Babylon at one point. We don't know exactly who he is, but we do see that he's given this kingdom to rule over. And he needs to administer it efficiently. His boss, Cyrus, is going to want to see returns on the investment of war. And so when he sees that this Daniel guy has served faithfully in verses 1 to 3, King Darius wants to elevate him. He wants to recognise that. He wants to put him to better use. And so, in verses 4 to 9, Daniel picks up enemies, and we see Darius pushed to make this decree. That for the next month, no one is to pray to anyone except to Darius himself. Now, to us, that seems 
insane. We can't really imagine most of our political leaders trying that one. But it's not a totally ridiculous move. Babylon has just fallen. It's been conquered. Presumably its gods have failed. There's going to be unrest. There'll be risk of division and uprisings and small civil wars. How do you deal with that? Well, in the context of pluralistic pagan religions, why not try to restore a sense of national unity and cement things together and reinforce the idea of a single common state religion? He's not banning other gods. It's only for a month. They can get by. And it probably doesn't hurt that there's a a bit of ego massage going on in verse 6, isn't there? King Darius, may you live forever. Let no one pray for much, except to you, obviously. He's manipulated by a, a bunch of slimy advisors. And of course, in hindsight, we and he see how he's been played. Look at these advisors. So verse 4, they plot against Daniel. Why? Why do they hate him? We don't, we don't know for sure. But it seems likely that they're threatened. That the pattern in the ancient world would be for local governors to have almost absolute rule. They could line their pockets as much as they liked, as long as they kept the peace and passed enough up the chain to their bosses. These guys, they'd be okay to accept bribes or confiscate property or indulge themselves, as long as there was enough tax or tribute flowing. No one higher up is going to look too closely. But here is an honest governor. Not even a native, but an outsider. A dirty forced migrant. And yet, running his territory utterly efficiently. Seeing that the king doesn't suffer loss. Now that's bad enough. Set against him, they're going to look bad. Their peculations will be made obvious. But even worse, if they have an honest governor put over them, their power and income are going to be restricted to legitimate means. There's a terrible irony in their hatred of Daniel. Not only are they pretending to honour the king while they tear down his most faithful servant, but also they finally arrest him while praying to his foreign god. But what do you think that this enemy of Babylon was praying for? We know from later in the book that about this time, Daniel is studying the prophecies of Jeremiah. He tells exiles like him in Jeremiah 29 to, to seek the Lord's blessings in Babylon. To settle down there until Cyrus sends them home. To pray for the city they're in. To ask the Lord to bless it and bring it to prosperity. And so Daniel is in part at least being executed for praying for the good of their nation. See then how how shameless they are. Look at verse 5. They know he's a good man. Look what they say. We will never find any basis for charges against this man. Not unless they focus on something that in their minds is utterly irrelevant. What does it matter to them which of the many gods Daniel worships? 
Their, their tactics show their hypocrisy. Look at verse 7 and spot the outright lie to their king. All your ministers have agreed, but they've not consulted one of the top three, have they? And yet they plan to accuse him of disrespecting the throne. Well, consider this. They, they plan to accuse Daniel of failing to worship the king as God in verse 13. But the point of the decree in verse 7 is that they don't think it matters if the gods aren't prayed to for a month. Really, what they think matters is the rule of man. You see that in verse 8, and then again in verse 12, and again in verse 15. Three times, deliberate emphasis, the laws of the Medes and Persians which cannot be revoked. I think the author wants us to see they are wielding the power of a human empire which pays lip service to its man-made idols. That is the power that they use to track Daniel and Darius. And, and so in this bit, looking at them, we see something of one of the themes of Daniel. When men live without reference to God, they become somehow less than human. The Lord seems to revoke his blessings of wisdom and self-control from people who will live without him. So remember how Nebuchadnezzar is brought low in, uh, in chapter 4. He's made like a wild beast. Remember how last week we saw Belshazzar losing control of his body. Those who live without God, says Daniel, become less. So see these guys? They want to play political games. They think they're in complete control of the situation. But... The metaphorical link is that they're the lions, isn't it? They're deliberately put here in parallel, bracketing the wild, reasonless beasts who want to tear down the Lord's servant. And the warning is that rulers who don't recognise and revere the Lord somehow are reduced to a lower level. We'll see more of that next week. But in the meantime, spot that these guys who've become like wild beasts in the way they attack Daniel, they're eventually given over to the wild beasts, in verse 24. And their power politics gives them no protection. It's just like the way the Bible portrays wickedness elsewhere. So if you think of Proverbs chapter 1, in verses 10 to 19, you get the picture of wicked men. And the way they're described is setting out snares to trap other people, but ultimately ensnaring themselves. Their sin ensnares and destroys them, and we get that here. Now, they've been very clever. They've got Daniel. But the living God can rescue his people from wild beasts. Again, just in passing, um, what a great credit it is to Daniel that they know exactly where to look for evidence of a godly character. I wonder if your colleagues could say the same of you. I wonder if mine can of me. Yet Daniel has lived in such a way that they know he will not depend on anyone except his God. So he will never pray to Darius. And they know that Daniel would never consider trying to live without depending on his God. 
So they know he's going to carry on praying. And so verse 11, they know exactly where and when to go to catch him red-handed. Good on Daniel. And then, what a great credit it is to Daniel to see how impressed his king is with him. That his king would struggle and fight to save him in verse 14. Look at that. Until, until sunset, when by law the decree has to be carried out, he's making every effort in his distress. That's just not how ancient kings usually dealt with those who defied them. Do you see how it's worked? By living and serving faithfully in a Gentile context, Daniel has become an adornment to his God. But Darius is bound by his human rules. The trap closes and he's forced to impose the law of man on Daniel. I wonder if at this point the other advisors began to twig that something had gone wrong. Do you think the penny's dropped yet? That they've realised that they've turned the king completely against them. And probably whatever happens to Daniel, their fate in verse 23 is sealed. He's not going to be happy to have been manipulated into killing his trusted advisor. Now to us, verse 23 is pretty horrific, isn't it? Now 24, sorry, is horrific. Not just them being thrown to the lions, but their families and children. Seems as unjust as anything else, but that was the high stakes nature of the Babylonian courts. The fact that Daniel was to be executed alone probably just indicates that he didn't have a family. But do spot that his enemies have identified him in verse 13. He's one of the exiles from Judah. So Daniel becomes a test case. If even the great Daniel can be executed and brought down for publicly being faithful to his God, any faithful Jew is exposed to persecution. The people of God can be wiped out overnight. Whereas if God vindicates Daniel, then his people have been protected. Isn't that interesting? In one man being restored to life and honour, a whole people are restored. Does that remind you of anything? I hope so. So we come to the crux of the passage then. We've got these central few verses. We've got Daniel, then the king, then the advisors, and now the lion's den. Verse 16. The king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. He's longing for deliverance, isn't he? A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. See how sealed with human authority, Daniel is dead. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. See the king's mourning and slightly overwrought anguish. Smacked slightly of the first world problem. I was so upset I couldn't watch Netflix. I couldn't get entertainment brought to me. But it is quite a huge statement for an eastern potentate to care this much for an underling. 
We don't know why he's mourning. Maybe it's because he, he knows he's been beaten at something. Maybe it's because he's lost a trusted servant. Maybe it's the injustice. Maybe it's because Daniel was respected or a friend even. Maybe it's the knowledge that he has just executed a servant of the living God. And there may be consequences. We don't know. But it's striking how seriously he takes it. Look at his prayer in verse 16. Daniel, may your God rescue you from my rule. Verse 19 and 20 is striking too. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. He called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And that is the crunch question of Daniel, isn't it? Who is in control? It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. It wasn't Belshazzar in chapter 5. Is it the conquering Medes and Persians? Is it the bureaucrats? Is it the human empire? No, verse 21. May the king live forever, says Daniel. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. The kingdom of the Son of Man that we're going to explore in the coming weeks, it trumps the beastly powers of the world. There it is at the centre of the passage. The living God rescues his people from their enemies. And Darius gets the lesson, credit to him. See that edict in verses 26 to 27. And consider the turnaround from previously trying to draw his kingdom together to pray to him. Now he's instructing every people of every language in all the earth Fear and reverence the living God, the one who can truly rescue. I suppose to the initial audience, whether that was Jews still in exile or, or those who were later returned to Israel but found themselves dominated by foreign pagan powers, for them this initial message must have been crucial. Remember how the living God saved his people. Remember Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Remember Moses and the Lord's rescue from Egypt. Remember your enduring history with this covenant, faithful, living God. Fear and reverence him when times are good. Depend on him in the hard times. And of course that message is there for us too, but amplified a thousandfold by the cross. Just consider how Daniel's just the pointer forwards to Jesus. Daniel is figuratively buried under law and risen at dawn. Jesus dies under the curse of the law on Good Friday. And his tomb is empty on Easter morning. Daniel is found to be unscathed by the lions. But Jesus bears the signs of his crucifixion for all eternity. A permanent record of what he has done. Daniel is vindicated and returns to prosperity and, and protects his exiled people from attack. The Lord's resurrection frees us, exiles in the world, from all of the devil's attacks as he prowls around like a roaring lion, we're told. Christian brothers or sisters, servants of the living God, has he been able to rescue you? 
Yes, of course. Ours is the God who rescues his people. We can remember that and cling to it and depend on it. It's the heart of the gospel and we can chew it over and we can marvel. And then we can be confident because he will carry us through any lion's den. I don't know what that is for you. It it might be sickness or hard work situations or, or real problems in your study or unemployment, or outright persecution and bullying, or loneliness or family struggle, your God, if you are a believer, rescues his people in their darkest hours. I wonder though, just before we finish, if there's a second point for us to take from here. If we can step a little bit further with the idea. It's easy, for me at least, to think of Daniel as the hero of the story. I think the message is to imitate him. And he's not a bad role model, right? He's faithful, he's steadfast, he does all the right things. He's seen to be godly, good on him. The focus of the chapter isn't him being rich at the beginning and safe at the end. That, that's the edges of the chiasm. The story of that wronged courtier is just used to frame a truth. The focus is the lion's den. That is where Darius the me becomes convinced that the living God is the one who matters. It's not the idols of Babylon or Persia or Medea. That is where one of the most powerful men of his time is so struck that he commands all people to turn their eyes to this God. What was it Did you see that the the wise and mighty Daniel did in those verses that impressed Darius so much? He was thrown to some lions. And I'd imagine that spot he felt pretty weak, probably quite stressed. No doubt he prayed through the night, that's not recorded. But it's not his might or power that Darius is convinced of. No, God's power. And again, we see this fully at the cross. God's power is made perfect in weakness. God is most glorified as Daniel is brought to his absolute lowest at the centre of this chapter. And that's uncomfortable. But I wonder, what difference does that make to the way that you see the story of your life? What difference does that make to the way that we pray when things are hard? Or to what we regard as the most important acts of service? Or or to who we perceive to be the heroes of faith? Our God is glorified when his people remain faithful through hard times. When he works in them, he grows their faith despite the attack that you feel or the illness that we suffer, or the the hardship. He's glorified when, like Job, in, in Job 19, in the midst of utter confusion and turmoil, can still say, I know my Redeemer lives. I know I will yet see him. When, like Daniel, his people are thrown to the lions and kept safe. 
Friends, in the face of dire challenge, do you tend to despair? I know I do. Did you long for it to be taken away? That's completely understandable, but be encouraged by Daniel's story. Rest assured that as for Daniel, the living God rescues his people. And as he does it, he refocuses our view of the world. He shows us which powers truly matter. And until we begin to see that what seems like our worst times, in fact, shows his glory best. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to have some time of response. Lord God, please fill our eyes with this truth. You are the living God. You endure forever. Your kingdom will not be destroyed and your dominion will never end. Grant us confidence, Lord, in the fact demonstrated and finally proved that your Son's cross and resurrection, that you rescue and you save. You perform signs and wonders. You rescue us from the power of your enemies. Amen.